little compound. Can you hear me? Yes? No? Yes? <laughs> Not a good sign if no one says anything. All right, we started a series in Luke called Stories of Redemption. And this morning we're going to be looking at another one of those stories. This is Luke chapter 5. It should be a familiar uh, passage for a lot of you. Uh, this is on the uh, Jesus healing the Pharisee. So we're looking at Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and to lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mists before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And Father, as we open up the text today and we look and we uh, see this story about redemption from your son, we just pray that uh, you will open our hearts to you, Father, that we might hear, Father. And uh, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Put that right there. Lots of stories start out with once upon a time or it was a dark and stormy night. Our story starts out on just an ordinary day. It says, one of those days as he was teaching. That's it. This is just an ordinary day. It's not the Sabbath because it would have specified that it was, that it was the Sabbath because that was so important. So it's just an ordinary day in an ordinary house in an ordinary town of Capernaum. And there's an ordinary crowd that's there. We have disciples that are there. We have Jewish people that are there. And we have sick people uh, that are there. In addition to this ordinary group, we have a very special group. And that's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These have come, uh, it says, from every village and from Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem was the capital. And so we have all of the bigwigs who have come out, and they've come from all the different villages, and they've come from the capital to see who Jesus is, and they want to find out exactly what's going on. So that's our setting. We have a packed house in an ordinary uh, village. The text says that Jesus was teaching and that the power was to heal was with him. So we have Jesus not only teaching, but we have him healing as well, but the primary focus of the text is on his teaching. Even though the story is a story about healing, the primary thing is about his teaching. We're going to find out what that is. So 
it wasn't just the, the paralytic that he was healing, but most likely it was the other ones because we see this throughout, throughout that he was healing people. So there was a, probably a lot of people there who were um, sick and who wanted to get, get healed. And so I'm picturing the scene of the big house with all these people in there and all these sick people who are out there with all these different infirmities. And I'm thinking of his disciples that are there. And it says, one of those days. And I think, what are one of our days like in comparison to one of their days are like? Can you imagine being a disciple and being with Jesus during this, during this time? Let's say you're like with, this, with a disciple, you've got a wife and kids at home, and so at the end of the day you go home and you're, your wife says, well, what was your day here like? And it's like, well, just an ordinary day. I had a problem. I was talking to Jesus. You know about that thing we talked about last week. And he said to me, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added on to you. I thought, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what it was like. And then later on, a big, big crowd came and Jesus was, Jesus was teaching the crowd and he was teaching them. You know, he got out the Old Testament. He was teaching the whole thing. And then there was a bunch of people that got healed. And, you know, just an ordinary day. <laughs> What an amazing time to be alive, and what an amazing time to see that. But this is what it was like. For them, this was one of those days to be with Jesus during those three years in his ministry. All the teaching, all the healing, all the miracles, all the people following must have just been an incredible, incredible time. And so we have here teaching, and we have here healing. This connection between teaching and healing we see all through the Bible, that these two things don't go separate. We see this teaching, this healing all the time. We see this in Acts chapter 4, even after Peter's let out from prison, he goes to the other disciples and the other people, and they go to the house and they begin to pray for what's going on. And the prayer that they have is, let us speak your word more boldly while you stretch out your hand and you heal and you perform signs and miracles and wonders. So this is all tied together, and this was Jesus' ministry. Matthew Henry says, those who receive the word of Christ in faith will find a divine power going along with that word to heal them. For Christ came with his comforts to heal the brokenhearted. The power of the Lord is present with the word, present to those that pray for it, submit to it, and present to heal them. Jesus doesn't always heal the broken body. He doesn't always heal that, but he does heal the brokenhearted. And that's what Matthew Henry is saying here, and that these things go together, and he does heal the brokenhearted. So as we look at the crowd that's there, and we see Jesus teaching, we see that some of those people who are teaching are the teachers of the law. And so we have a picture of Jesus teaching the teachers. And we say, why would he teach the teachers? It seems like they should already know these things. But if we think about it, if he can teach the teachers, and he can teach the the, uh, the Pharisees, and if they get it, and if they understand with their heart what Jesus is and who Jesus is, they're going to bring this back to all of the people. It's the natural order of things. If the leaders and the teachers really understand who Jesus is, then they can lead the people. So, this is one of the main reasons. Uh, and so the question is, will these teachers learn? Will these teachers understand? Will these teachers get what Jesus is saying? And unfortunately, we see that they don't. Because we can see in the rest of the, of the Gospels that they don't get it. And they're antagonistic the whole time. Um, and they're the ones who eventually are going to put Jesus to death or be the cause of, of Jesus' death. Um, 
we need to be humble and we need to be teachable. And we see that these uh, Pharisees aren't. Because they could have learned right then and right there and they could have understood who Christ was. But they didn't. So, um, to get back to our story, there's some men and they're going to bring a paralyzed man to be healed. This is what their goal is. We don't know what the relationship with it is. We don't know if it's his family or if it's friends or who it is. We're just going to assume that it's uh, friends. We do know that there's four men. We assume that they're young because of what they were of what they were able to do. And so they carry the man on a cot. So we have the four men there. And so we can picture them carrying the man on the cot. Picture them walking down the road. And in the morning they wake up. They know that Jesus is in town. They know that he's up at the up at the house, and they're going to take him. And so they get his cot out, and they pick him up in the cot. And I can picture him going down the road, walking down, and I can picture one on each side like that. And they're maybe cracking jokes, and they're having a good time. They're real optimistic Jesus is going to do it. Maybe they're teasing him about, you know, dropping him and kind of knocking and he's, <laughs> you know, trying to balance himself and going through. And then I picture the guy in the cot and what it was like, what it was like for him to be lying on a cot and looking down thinking that he's going to see Jesus. And what does he see? He sees the blue skies. He sees the sun. He sees the heads of his friends from the beard, you know, from the beard up. And picture him just being kind of jostled down. But they have an image in their mind of what they're going to do. And they think that when they get here, Jesus Christ is going to heal them. And so they have this great hope that this is what's going to happen. These men that are bringing him know that they can't heal him. They know that they have no power to heal this to heal their friend. There's nothing that they can possibly do for the friend. But they do know this. They can bring him to Jesus. And this is what they're doing. They know that they can bring him to Jesus and that Jesus can, um, can heal them. And I wonder, do we have that same attitude? I have a friend who's not a Christian or I have a brother or I have a sister or a mom or a daughter or a son and I know that there's nothing I can do to bring him to Jesus. Or there's nothing I can do to forgive their sins, I should say. But do we say, I know that we can bring him to Jesus. Can we bring him that far so that they can find it? And that's one of the things that we want to strive to do. Lots of times we think that we're not smart enough and we think that we, you know, we can't persuade someone or we can't argue them or we don't know the four spiritual laws or we don't know, you know about um, evolution or this or that. We don't know all these things, but we don't need to know all these things. We just need... Um, to bring him here. And Spurgeon says, along the same line, we think about this, he says, you notice that he needed four people to bring him to Jesus. Sometimes one will do, but sometimes you need two, or you need three, or you need four. Someone might show him love, and someone might show him compassion, but that might not be love. Enough, you might need someone who kind of you know, kicks them along a little bit more and, and convicts them a little bit more in a different way. Sometimes we need four people. Spurgeon pictured his church and asked his church that they would come together in groups of four and pray for specific people and do specific things in an effort to bring people to Christ, knowing that sometimes one person isn't enough, but we need two or we need three or we need four um, to tell them that to lead him to Christ. So, so these men knew that they couldn't heal him, but they knew that they could bring him to Christ. So what do they see when they get there? There's four men coming down. They picture themselves walking in. They picture themselves opening up the door, laying him down in Jesus, and Jesus healing him. 
when they come around the bend, they can probably start to hear the noise, they can probably start to hear the people, they can start to see the crowds. And now all of a sudden, the whole place is crowded. There's people inside, there's people outside, there's people standing in the doorway, there's no possible way to get in. There's probably a crowd outside of people who, like themselves and like their friend, have come to hear Jesus and have come to be healed. His, his healing, the news that he has healed, has spread all over. So they get there, and there's probably all kinds of uh, people right there. And they're faced with a huge obstacle. What do they do? How can they get him in? How can they get him, get him to Jesus? So we know that they had faith because they got their friend and they got him in the cotton and they brought him there. But now their faith is going to be tested because there's no way to get to Jesus. They only got him so far. They can't get any, they can't get any further. Oftentimes our faith grows strongest when we're in difficult situations. If we're just coasting along... Faith usually isn't built up, but it's when we come to those difficult, difficult, difficult situations that our faith is tested, and that's the times when our faith proves to be the strongest. So this is what happened to them. They can't get in. They're faced with a physical obstacle that, how can they get past all these people who are already crowding in to try to get there? And on top of that, we have all of the people, all of the other the, uh, teachers of the law, all the Pharisees, that are already there. So you have all the big wigs in Israel that are there, so you also have the fear of man. What are you going to do when they're faced with physical obstacles getting in and the fear of man on top of that? And how often are we faced with these two things that prevent us from going to Jesus? These ones are faced with, with getting in physically, but how often are we faced with suffering, with pain, with overwhelming obstacles, uh, at work, such as long hours, difficult situations, difficult co-workers, or the fear of man. What will these people think of me? What will these people do? What will these people say? So we're faced with all of these obstacles. And these obstacles can sometimes prevent us from getting to Christ. It can prevent us from spending time with Christ. It can prevent us from our communion um, with God. These things prevent us from drawing near to God. But we can't let the obstacles do that. James chapter 4, verses 8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. We need to make every effort to get to God. We need to make every effort to draw near um, to God. What are the ways that we draw near to God? The Puritans called them duties. What are our duties? But they're simply ways or methods or things that we do to draw near to God. And some of these things are... Um, Confession and repentance. If there's sin that's in our lives that, that breaks that barrier and breaks that communion down, it's through confession and it's through repentance. Other things are prayer, scripture reading, fellowship with the brothers. These are the things that we do that, that bring us close to God. And these are the things that we do that draw us near to God. We know, just like these four men knew, that it's not their duties that they put their faith in. But it's Jesus Christ Himself. They weren't confused in, in any way that they would do everything that they possibly could do to get Him to Christ. But they knew that it was Christ who would do the healing. It was, his, it was the faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we come to our duties and we try to pray and we try to read the Bible and we try to fellowship with the brothers and we see sin in our lives and we repent of it and we confess of it, 
These are the things that we should do to their utmost effort, just like these did, as hard as they possibly can, and any obstacle to overcome, we should do this. But we know the faith is in Christ. The faith is in Christ's work on the cross and what He has, and what he has uh, done for us. So, when they can't get through the door, they decide that they're going to get through the roof. So once again, we have this picture. What does this look like? We have four men trying to bring someone up on a cot onto a roof. Was there a ladder there? Was there a stairway there? Did the neighbors have a ladder and their house was really close and they could just kind of <laughs> jump over? We don't know, but what we have is four people carrying this one guy up and trying not to fall down and trying not to him fall. So they get up to the top of the roof. They're on the roof, but they still can't get in to see Jesus. They can kind of figure out where he is. He should be right about here, where X marks the spot. And so they start taking the tiles off. And so they take the tiles off, and they take the tiles off, and they take the tiles off. And when I used to think about this, I used to think, well, they took some tiles off and they lowered them down. But I started thinking, how big of a hole did you have to make for someone on a cot? Figure he's like five foot eight inches. And you want two inches for his head and two inches for his feet. That's six feet. Then they probably had some kind of handle. So you're talking about a hole that's over six feet long and at least, what, like three feet wide that they had to dig out. So this wasn't just a little, a little hole. And I think, well, what about these people who are underneath there? And they're like listening to Jesus and they're kind of doing, <laughs> doing this. And they see a little shaft of light and they see some hand come in and just start, just start pulling out. And what about the, the people who are exactly underneath and they're going like that and the dust is falling and, and stuff. But they do it. They dig the hole. They proceed to dig the hole. And then it says that they lowered him down. My next question is, where did they get the rope? Are they always prepared like the Boy Scouts? Do they have the rope with them? Do they ask the neighbors? We have no idea. It doesn't say. But I always think, well, where did this stuff come from? Because I, I always try to picture, what does it look like when they actually do this stuff? How much effort did they put forward to get their friend to Christ? It's, 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 it's incredible what they do. So they get the hole. It's a huge hole. At least six feet by three feet. And they lower him down. And so all the people are watching him come down and thinking, you know, what's going on? So he gets down, and it says they lay him in front of Jesus. And then I think, what does Jesus do? And then I picture Jesus looking up at the hole and looking at these four guys going like this, <laughs> smiling down at Jesus, waving, and just like, think about their faith. Think about their hope. They're expecting to see a miracle here. Their faith is just undaunted. And then they're looking up at the hole, or Jesus is looking up. They're looking down. He looks down at his friend. It just must have been just an amazing, just an amazing thing um, to look at it. And when you think about the faith that these four men had, you know, is our faith like this? Do we expect a miracle? So much more, so even before we're promised something, we're carrying our friends, we're going around the crowds, we look stupid in front of these big wigs, we're climbing up on these ladders, carrying a guy, now we're tearing someone's roof apart. Do we even know these people? Do we plan on putting it back together when we're done? Who's going to fix the roof when it's over? I don't know. But they have... So much faith that Jesus Christ is going to heal their friend as they do this. I know that we have a faith like that. That we have a faith that we would just, just go to these great, great lengths. It's, it's just amazing. So what is Jesus going to do? Is Jesus going to rebuke them? Is he going to you know, reject them? Are they being too bold? Are they just plain irritating to everybody around? Jesus is trying to teach. We know that. Um, it says, Jesus saw their faith. What an understatement that was. It's like everybody saw their faith, especially the people with the dust on their hair. You know, they all saw their faith. But in Mark it says, he says to the man, take heart, 
Take heart. Look at the compassion that he has in the man. Take heart. The love that Jesus Christ has for us. Just incredible. So he says, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus Christ saw the faith of the men. Jesus Christ saw the faith of the paralyzed man as well. All of them had faith. All five of them had faith. When Calvin talks about the faith of the individual man himself, he says, the paralytic could not have obtained the forgiveness of his sins if he had had no faith of his own. Unworthy persons were often restored by Christ to the health of the body as God maketh daily as God daily maketh his son to rise in the evil and the good. But there is no other way in which he is reconciled to us but by faith. So it is faith that we are called to have. We know beyond a fact that Jesus Christ forgave this man's sins. We also know that Jesus Christ said when he saw their faith. He healed their sins. These guys brought him to be healed physically and Jesus Christ heals him spiritually. He forgives them of their sins. The forgiveness of sins is the most important part of this story. The most glaring part is that a paralyzed person could walk, but the most important part is that this man's sins were forgiven. Matthew Henry says, They presented the sick man to Christ, and he said, Man, the sins are forgiven thee. That is the blessing that thou art most to prize and to seek. For if thy sins be forgiven thee, though the sickness be continued, it is in mercy. If they be not, though the sickness may be removed, it is in wrath. Matthew Henry says, If your sins are forgiven even if the sickness continues, is because of Christ's mercy. It is because of Christ's love. But if you're healed and you don't have forgiveness of sins, it is His wrath. Even if He heals you physically, but doesn't forgive your sins, it is the wrath of God. So we can be sick and we cannot be healed, but we have the forgiveness of sins. These people, these four friends, could have stopped right there and they could have just brought up the ropes right there and said, our job is done. Everything is done. This man's sins are forgiven. They could have picked up the rope. They could have hauled up the cot. They could have climbed on the ladders. And they could have brought him home rejoicing for the rest of their life because this man is going to heaven. And in heaven, he will have a new body. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. This man is now a new creature in Christ at that second. Before he stands up, before he walks, before anything, his sins have been forgiven. We still have another group here who's watching this whole thing. He's watching the guy come down and he's watching Jesus Christ say, your sins are forgiven. This group is the Pharisees and the the, uh, teachers of the law. We don't really know what his friends thought as they're looking down the hole and they're watching him and they're seeing all this stuff. But we do know what the Pharisees thought because the text is clear. It says what they thought. It says that they questioned him in their hearts. Who is this that speaks blasphemies? They had traveled from all over the place in order to see who Jesus Christ was and to see what was going on. And they judged him immediately. They judged him to be blasphemous. If Jesus Christ was just a man 
At this point, it is fine to question him. And if they had questioned him, it would have been a different story. But they didn't question him. Only in their hearts. They only judged him in the hearts. They actually didn't even question him. They didn't open it up and they didn't give him an audience. They didn't ask those questions, only to themselves. And they judged him to be blasphemous. For they, for they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? So rather than investigating, these are teachers of the law. They know that the Messiah is going to come. This is the person who they're expecting. And rather than ask those questions and find out and do some research, they could have found out right now that he was, that he was God, but they didn't. They just judged him. Um, they're faced with either accepting him or completely rejecting him. And they completely reject him. Um, the prophets of old, through God's work, could heal people. Peter and the disciples, and Paul himself later on, through God, can heal people. But it's very clear when they heal people that it's not them that heal people, but it's God himself. In uh, Acts chapter 3, Peter says, Men of it, this is after they healed the lame, the lame man was at the front of the temple. It says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And he goes on and says, it says, uh, it's his name and uh, the faith through Jesus Christ that has given this man the perfect health in the presence of all. So they would heal. They had the God work through them to heal. But they couldn't forgive sins. Jesus Christ is the only one who claimed the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus Christ was the only one that the authority was given to to forgive sins. So these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, in their heart are judging Christ. And in their heart, um, they're asking these questions. This whole passage is about teaching that Jesus Christ is the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus Christ is teaching, and that's the main focus, is his teaching when we see that. And in his teaching, he addresses the hearts. He addresses the hearts of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. It's in our hearts where our questions lie. It's in our hearts where we either accept Jesus Christ or we reject Jesus Christ. It's in our hearts that we do this. It's our hearts that get hard. Acts 2 says, But because of your hard and your impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So he addresses their hearts. Our hearts is what we have to address. Our hearts is what we have to look at. Our hearts. So Jesus says to them, which is easier to say? Your sins are for your given, or to rise and to walk. He asks them this question for a specific reason. There's a reason why he poses this question. This is because they believe that all sickness was caused by sin. In John, there, uh, some are asking Jesus, says, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Sometimes this is the case, but not always. Jesus responds to that question, who sinned, him or his, or his parents? And Jesus answered him and said, It was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, that's reality is that it's not always sin, but that God's might will be displayed. This is why it happens. But he uses their argument to prove that he has the authority to sin. Because their argument 
is that he is paralyzed because of his sin. If Jesus Christ now says, your sins are forgiven, but the man is not healed, there's no proof. But if he says, your sins are forgiven, now rise and walk, he says, I have forgiven sins and I have now healed him. If his sins are gone, his sickness is gone. If his sickness is here, his sins are here. They can't have both. And so he's using their argument to heal this man. And so he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and to go home. It would have been much easier to lie about being able to forgive sins because I can say, oh, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. But we can't see that. We don't know that. Where they could see the man walk up. They could see the proof that they were looking for. This physical proof is designed to show the spiritual truth of what has happened is that the man's sin has been forgiven. One more thing, too, is I'm looking at this and I'm picturing this. You know, once again, we've got the crowd around. We've got Jesus there. We've got the four guys looking down the hole trying to figure out what's going on and stuff. And Jesus says, rise. All he does is speak to the man. He just gives him a word. He just says, to rise. There's nothing flashy. There's nothing spectacular about it at all. Which makes the miracle even greater. Because if he had done something, they could have attributed to this or that. But all he did was simply, he just spoke to him. He just says, rise. And the man rise. And so he was using this as a case of authority. And so as we think of authority, we think of like the military and we think of someone who's like an officer and he has the authority to tell an enlisted man what to do. And all he has to do is say the word. And the enlisted man has to do it. And so in this case, we have Jesus expressing his authority. And he gives the word, and sin is forgiven. Um, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This is the glory of Jesus' word. So, what happens next? Jesus says, rise, your sins are forgiven, and immediately... The man rises before them. He picks up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. And picture, what is it like for the man? Because the man, too, is on the floor. We have all these people seating. It says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting. We have all the people standing. We have the crowds. We have the doors coming in. He's lying on the ground. He's as low as you can possibly go. Looking up, looking at Jesus. And so, what did it feel like for the man who was paralyzed to just to be able to stand up? What did it feel like to have that strength run back through his limbs? Did he feel it right away? Did he feel it when he stood up? When was it in his field? What was it like for his friends that were looking down at the hole? What was it like for him, for his friends, to see him and see what they thought was going to happen, happen, to see him rise up? What did Jesus do? I picture him too the same way. The man rises up. He smiles at the man. He looks up at the four men and I picture him smiling up at the four men. Can you imagine that, having Jesus Christ look up at you looking down and just smile at you? Well done, my good and faithful servant, which is what he's going to say to us. We're going to see that same, that same smile on him. It, it, it just must have been an amazing thing. And now, when we look at all the stuff that these men do, one thing that we notice is the contrast. This is just an observation. This is kind of like a side thing. Just, but notice the difference between the Pharisees' actions and their lack of faith versus the actions on the, on the men and on the paralyzed guy. It says that the Pharisees sat and questioned. That's all they did. 
They sat and they questioned. These four, these five men, because I conclude the fifth one, they walked, they carried, they climbed, they lowered, they believed, they rose, they went home, and they glorified God. Look at all the action that they did when the other ones just sat and questioned. That's all they did. When we think of this, when we think of Jesus as healing, as healing him, this is the same Jesus that did this then that we know now. This is the same Jesus that we have our faith in. This is the Jesus that we pray to. This is the Jesus that we say, in Jesus' name, I pray this prayer. This is our Jesus, like God is our Father. Not that we own Him, but this is, this is who He is. This is the same one. Matthew Henry says, How well is it for us that this most comfortable doctrine of the Gospel, that Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our Savior, has the power to forgive sin and has such full attestation. It's just amazing that this is our Jesus. It just, it just, it just struck me. And this isn't some foreign thing. This isn't something that happened 2,000 years ago. This isn't something that is just part of history. But this is our Jesus, the one that we, that we worship. Jesus forgives sins. He forgave His sins and He healed them. But the forgiveness of the sins is the most important of all. That's the comfortable doctrine that Matthew Henry says. He calls it the comfortable doctrine that Jesus Christ forgives sins. And isn't it true? Isn't it a, fun, a comfortable doctrine that Jesus Christ does this. So what does the man do? What does the man respond? Jesus Christ says, rise up. His sins are forgiven. He is now a Christian. The first thing he does is he obeys him and he glorifies God. Jesus says, stand up. He stands up and he glorifies God. This should be our response to obey and to glorify God. It says, amazement seized them all and they glorified God. True comfort should cause us to praise God. True comfort should cause us to praise God. When Todd came up last week and told about his neck and his shoulder and how that had been bothering him, and the week before he had came up and asked for prayer, and uh, um, two of us prayed for him, and he said that next week, he said prior to that, he had been at home, and every night at 3 o'clock in the morning he would wake up in pain and couldn't go to sleep. He couldn't sleep the night through. And he said after the prayer... He said when that, when that was gone, when Jesus had taken that away, he said he still woke up at 3 o'clock, but this time he prayed to God and he praised God. That's the most wonderful thing that we can hear about a testimony like that, is that at 3 o'clock in the morning, Todd was praising God because of what he had did. That's true comfort. That's what our comfort should lead us to. It should lead us to glorifying God. Suffering at the same time should lead us to God. These things should all lead us to God. God isn't only concerned with healing. We should go to God and we should ask for, ask for healing. But He's concerned for us. And He's concerned and He wants communion with us. And uh, these are one of the things too that we um, they will want to go, to go to God for. Um, God does not always choose to heal us. We know that very well. In this case, He chose to heal the man, but He doesn't always. We look at Paul, the Apostle Paul in the Bible, 
who God used to heal many people and God used to preach his gospel to the Gentiles and, and used to write like half of the New Testament. And Paul suffered almost his whole life. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Jesus Christ is concerned about our body. He's more concerned about our forgiveness of sins. And He took one of His main men that He used to spread the Gospel and He let Him suffer the whole life. He had some suffering His whole life. God had ordained that this would be this way. And Paul even says that it was to keep me from being too elated is what, is what he said. If a, um, this is just a little story that we don't, we don't know why suffering occurs. And we certainly can't say in every case it's for this case, it's for this case, it's for this case, it's for this case. But I read once, and I don't remember who it was, it was one of those Puritan guys, they've all been dead for like 300 years, so I don't, I don't think they care who it was. But, but, they, but they were talking about just that sometimes we're given suffering so that we won't wander away from Christ because He knows our personalities. He knows what we like. He knows what our natural tendencies were. And if we were in perfect health, we would just walk away from Christ and He would just ignore Him and we would just slowly go down to nothing. If a boy comes to his father in the morning and says, can I have a dollar? And the father gives him a dollar. He doesn't see the son for the rest of the day. And the next morning, the boy comes up and says, can I have five dollars? And he gives the boy the five dollars and he doesn't see him for five days. If the boy comes up to him and the next time and says, can I have $10? Do you think the father's going to give him the $10? He won't see the boy for 10 days. So, God sometimes knows what we're like. He knows what our tendencies are. He knows that we're just going to just drift away. That's not all the time why He does it. We do know that He does it to glorify His name because we saw that before. This happened so that my name might be glorified, that God's name might be glorified. But this is just one instance of why suffering is important and why suffering is vital. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites, was suffered his whole life. He would miss months at a time when he couldn't suffer. He went away one time to France. He went all the way to France. He had this place on the water that he would go when he was sick. He spent like, I don't remember what it was, like two or three weeks there. His wife was, um, uh, I don't know if she was bedridden or she couldn't get out bedridden, I guess maybe a wheelchair, but she couldn't travel. She couldn't leave. Towards the end of her life, she suffered so much she never heard him speak, preach for the last few years of his, his life. She couldn't even get out to go to the church. So he left for like a month. He leaves his wife. He leaves the church because at that time they thought this is what was needed to be well, to spend some time by the sea. So he spends his time by the sea. He feels well. He's all excited to get back. He's like a day out and he just gets sick. He just gets just as sick as can possibly be. And he's worse off than when he had left and he spent this whole month there. 
And when he gets back, he says, I have no idea why God did this. I have no idea. But I do know this. He did it for my good and for his glory. And I will praise the Lord for this, even though I have no idea why this happened. So God does allow suffering. And we know that it's his to his glory. But once again, the most important thing is the forgiveness of sins. It's our salvation. When we get to heaven, we get a new body. But while we're here, we want to be God's workmanship. We want to do what God has to do. And for some of us, you know, He has He has things in store that look this way, and other people things in store that look this way. And for some people, suffering is what it is. My brother has suffered for decades. He has had surgery after surgery after surgery. And just one thing after another, after another, after another. And yet he glorifies God in his life. He, has a, he sits at his home. He works when he can. He, you know, when he gets sick, he does it and stuff. But he um, writes letters and he sends emails and he calls people constantly. And he calls people who might never get any other phone calls otherwise. And he writes some letters that might not get any other letters. So God has used his suffering to his great wonderful glory and that these people are being ministered to that may not have been ministered had my brother not been not been suffering for that time as we close i have one last thought and this is prayer what is the role of prayer in this whole thing that we've seen the text says nothing about prayer but we can't imagine that they didn't pray that they didn't pray it just didn't mention it. Because we know how important praying is. And we can picture that this guy had his, all of his friends being prayed for, maybe prayed for his whole life. James chapter 13, no, chapter 5, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 say this Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. If anyone is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing. All of these roads should lead us to God, whether we're suffering or whether we're joyful. It is to God that we want a communion. It is to God that we live our lives. It is Him who has forgiven us our sins. Whether He heals our body or whether He doesn't heal our body, He forgives us our sins. We are to do this with faith. Just as the faith, these four men who brought their friend. Father God, we praise you, Father, for what you do for us. We praise you, Father, that you have forgiven us our sins, which is truly the most important thing. And we pray you for that. We thank you for that. Father, if there's anyone here today who has not sought You out, Lord, who has not asked for their sins to be forgiven, who has not confessed their sins to You. Father, I pray that they might do this, Father. 
I pray that Your Spirit will move in their hearts where these questions are asked, where these questions are answered, Father. I pray that their hearts will not be hardened. Father, we thank You for this example, Father, of how how Your Son Jesus Christ forgives our sins. And Father, like the four men up on the roof watching You as You smile to them, Father, we thank You for that. can't just burst with joy when we think of You and forgiving Your sins. And Father, as You will say to us, Father, in eternity, when we get our new bodies, and You'll look us at the eye and You'll smile and say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We just uh, thank You for that. In Jesus' name, the same Jesus who healed this man, who forgave him his sins, in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.